I mean, I wanted to be to be free, and I was lucky enough to be given tastes of that freedom in small and large ways, and to be able to live life without the the judge, because in my life, the judge was so present. Right. My upbringing, and I was trained to be a analytical intellectual, who, and I was very hard on myself. The critic, and, and that was a, yeah, that was a big in our family. That was a big habit, multi generational habit, and to live life without the weight of that, without that sack of potatoes, that is worth was for me worth the price of admission right there. And that was worth all of, all of the unnecessary. <laughs> Um, you know, asceticism that I put myself through. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, on the flip side of that, you could say, yeah, a lot of weight was taken off. And at the same time, with that weight coming off, there's just, I realized, I discovered that there's just so much bliss. There's so much cause, uncaused, causeless joy. It's a term used a lot these days, but it's just, that just wants to, to bubble up an experience. Yeah. Uh, when, when we're at, Beating the crap out of ourselves with, you know, self-incriminating thoughts and, and and you know all of that, and that you know is is wonderful. Being in flow, which is you know being in flow, being in the flow state because we're not beating it. You got to accentuate the positive. Wow, I feel good. A little bit of feel good goes a long way. You're listening to Karen Swain, teacher of deliberate creation, accentuating the positive, showing you a way to a better life. Accentuating the positive, it's not just fad, it's sanity. Who in their right mind would accentuate anything else? Hello and welcome to yet another show, Accentuating the Positive with Karen Swain. Boy, have I got someone wonderful to introduce you to today, (laughs) the traveling guru, (laughs) don't call me guru, meditation teacher, Ishtar Howe. Welcome to the show, Ishtar. Thank you, Karen. So beautiful to have you on the show. So how did we find each other? Facebook, I think. I think one of your students or friends or actually, to tell you the truth, you came across my path. And I tuned into your energy and I'm like, oh, this dude looks really interesting. Let me check him out. And I sort of put him on the, I put you on there. I'll check you out later. And then somebody that knows both of us connected us again. And I'm like, that's the universe speaking. Let me read out your very long bio, but it's going to go over your, <laughs> it's going to go over your story. So you've done the rounds. You've been on many people's shows. You've been Buddha at the gas pump. You've been on wisdom from north you've been you've been doing the rounds so we won't go too much into your story because you've said it about a million times but let me because your bio kind of uh, goes over your story okay ishtar born thomas howell works as a meditation teacher ishara monk gardener writer and intuitive astrologer a sense of himself as presence was a profound feature of his early years on earth until about the age of seven. At 13, he was in a car accident that took his mother's life and initiated an NDE experience or a near-death experience, which brought about a profound experience of samadhi, which he experienced along with an intense grieving process. After this presence faded, Ishtar longed to return to this essence, resulting in an energetic spiritual search for a good many years, right? 
At the age of 17, you began a regime of meditation practices and aesthetic principles or disciplines that included waking to cold showers at 3 a.m., fasting, and six hours of daily meditation practice. Did that work? Yes, it did a certain amount. The, yeah. the practices, I think, were a little bit, the ones I was doing back then were much more difficult than what I came to later, but it did certainly have quite, quite a lot of uh, profound effects. Yeah. So the cold showers, is that something about having a cold shower? What, what does the cold shower do? Well, you know, I, there were a lot of different rationale that were, that were expressed in the books that I was reading at the time, but one of them was certainly about cleansing the blood and, you know, kind of having blood go down, blood come out. And though I wasn't doing the alternation with a sauna or a hot pool, that's, that's really what gets that going. But it was uh, certainly rousing me and waking me up and, and, and kind of getting me very much prepped for, for meditation, like, like you'd want to be if you're crazy enough to get up at three in the morning. Yeah, so, you're uh, crazy enough to have a cold shower at three in the morning. I, tell, I It just reminds me when we were kids, my mother lived in this apartment block that had a sauna and a couple of in pools, one indoor, one outdoor. And we used to sit in the sauna, jump in the outdoor pool, freezing, and then jump in the indoor, like do all this sort of like hot and cold thing. Who knew we were doing a meditation practice? We were just being kids. <laughs> anyway, okay, let's go on. Longing to find his path, uh, he encountered a practice known as Ishara Ascension, an effortless and deeply pleasurable form of meditation. Several months after learning Ascension, found himself living on, an Oregon, uh, on the Oregon coast in a monastic environment dedicated to this practice. The ashram life brought about a rapid acceleration in growth, leading to ever more cons consistent experiences of silence, in closed eyes meditation practice while cooking for the community in cafes, doing service work and planting gardens. So you're so you're an avid gardener and chef, right? <laughs> meditation, eating, gardening, sounding good. <laughs> After going through a six months intensive teacher training program that involved around 12 hours closed eyed meditation a day, you began teaching classes around the world and living in various uh, regional meditation centers. Seeming miracles, uh, wild manifestations witnessed you witnessed what's to say a conscious witness consciousness and celestial perceptions were frequent occurrences as awareness slowly but surely saturated more and more of your life so what sort of manifestations oh god well uh, i suppose some i mentioned in those copious other videos but um i think one of the the wildest one was was simply manifesting a bunch of customers out of nowhere uh, in, in the cafe that we, that we had, it just sort of suddenly came bubbled up and, and there we, you know, we had 20 people come in the restaurant, you know, a party of 20. We'd never had a party bigger than eight, uh, before up to that point. And, and there was this just verbalization. Wouldn't it be cool if there were, if 20 people just like came into the cafe and it was terribly surprising when they did, but at the same time, not. And then after we served them, which, which we served in some sort of record time, uh, totally immersed in the flow state, and they cleared out, we cleaned the table, it was still there. And so there was, why do, wouldn't it be cool if 18 people came in? And then sure enough, a party of 18 people came, we just sat them right back where the party of 20 was. And, and that was at the end of the day. And that 18, uh, uh, party of 18 cleared our refrigerators out. And so I was about yeah. to say, wouldn't it be cool? No, we're done. We're closed. What about but the loaves I, and, and the dishes? 
Couldn't you manifest? Yeah, yeah. No food, just manifest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I had always wanted to, because I was raised uh, uh, you know, to be rational and to be a critical thinker and to be skeptical. And I think those things are, are wonderful to maintain and you don't have to lose them. Uh, but at the same time, I, I had longed to have experiences that were so big and so um, odd and so peculiar that my, my mind couldn't rationalize them away as just some sort of uh, random coincidence. And that, was a, though that experience was among the, the, the many that were really dotting my life at the time, including basically kind of in a certain sense manifesting quotes that job at the cafe which was, you know. Okay, so I'm going to finish your bio in a minute. But when you're on this intense search for meaning and to return to presence, like the presence that you experienced during the the NDE experience when your mum died, which we'll go into briefly, were you kind of asking the universe to like show you, show you, is this stuff real, is this stuff real? Like were you kind of asking for these experiences? Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I certainly was. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I, I did because I was working as an energy healer and I was like just doing all, seeing all psychic stuff. But I said to the universe, you know, I want to see something physical. I want to see some, some physical thing. But people didn't come to me as a healer dripping with their wounds. So it wasn't like I was healing people's physical like cuts and broken arms and things like that. But my daughter gave me that experience of cutting herself and I put my hand over it and we both just did the healing technique we just asked for healing and it instantly healed just instantly sealed and i'm like okay cool (laughs) thank you for that so i was asking so you were asking right ask and you shall receive because as you say that critical mind um you need to prove this to me yeah you know like we need to all right so where are we um in 2008 you left the monastic life and took an extended break from meditation teaching. The years lived outside the semi-cloistered environment of the ashram were often challenging, but ultimately led to more deeply anchored presence. This process continued to unfold or continues to unfold and expand. Since 2014, you have began teaching ascension and working as a spiritual guide, giving people a reliable practice with which to cultivate awareness and assisting people in relaxing into presence as, um, as a constantly lived experience. Since 2015, you've also been working as an intuitive astrologer with a primary focus on helping people align more completely with their soul's purpose. Do you think that that's what astrology really brings us, like uh, an understanding of what we're doing here? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's the focus that I take with it. Cause that's always, I'm a little bit biased and wired, uh, you know, toward, toward Dharma and ultimate purpose. And let's just get to the, get to the marrow of what this life is supposed to be about and, and run towards it expeditiously. And I, astrology has seemed to, you know, as skeptical as I was for years and years and, you know, kind of still am, it has borne out to be a, a wonderful, insightful map into, into people's dharmas and you know, what they're here for, what they're here to learn and, and the, the sort of the vector of their growth. Yeah. So dharma, the word dharma, what is your understanding for people that don't understand the word dharma? Well, uh, you know, I, I like to call it the North Star. I think everybody has a North Star 
everybody has uh, a general, uh, general direction of which their life is, is looking to move, which for them is going to be the highest path of growth that for them that is going to ultimately be the most fulfilling and the most um, filled with, with bliss and joy. And, and if, if people follow that, then life tends to get easier and easier as they're, they're, they're not going against the grain of, of you know, where their soul is ultimately trying to go anymore. And so. Okay. So we've had people like Robert Schwartz on the show who talks about your soul's plan and your soul's journey. And he talks about how we all plan our life before we come. We have a, a general, um, we have a general plan. <laughs> the only way I can say it, like a goal but ultimately free will to sort of get to that goal anywhere we want. But the goal is always some spiritual lesson. So we've talked a lot about with different teachers on the show, how we often um, write into the script of our lives, the dramas and um, the things that happen mm. to us that we wouldn't choose from this linear mind perspective. Do you think that your soul's plan and do, you th and do you think that you can also see this in an astrology chart was like the experience with your mother when you were, how old were you, seven or 13, 13? Uh, 13, 13. Do you think you, you yes. know, scripted a good, that a good, in? A good astrologer can. I looked at my chart and it wasn't, um, the chart wasn't, wasn't that evocative or it didn't really indicate something strongly there. However, um, well before I had any interest in astrology as, as a young man, uh, there was there was often a sense of sort of going down into a vast silence and you know you connected to what felt like a script, what felt like this sort of river that was already there that I was kind of you know uh, already following and and especially uh, around my mother's death uh, because the night before I had the, you know a very strong precognitive sense that she was going to die which was uh, very peculiar because I'd never had that. Um, fear uh, with my mother before, always with my father, never my mother, and us, you know. So, so the accident—you were in the car, and um, obviously the car hit you and, and killed your mom. And at the time that that happened, you had your sort of NDE experience, which was that sense of presence that you were experiencing, right? Like you did—did did you leave your body and look? You didn't really leave your body and look down on your body. You just had it while you're in in your body, didn't you? Yeah, so there, of course there was also a sense in which um, uh, there was most certainly a great deal of, of I call it non-localized awareness. Right. Uh, and and in the ambulance there was there was a sense of both being in my body and looking down. Yeah. At the same time, which was, which was interesting, and there was a sense of being everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere at, that that was that just existed at the same time as having a, a fairly you know solid normal mundane experience of being in the body so. i know it's yeah i know look i've spoken to a lot of people on the show who have had ndes and you know most of them pretty much all of them except for nancy ryans who was hit by a truck a few years ago she was an atheist before she had her nde she had this experience of watching it watching the accident like watching her body being dragged under the truck and being in her body being dragged under the truck simultaneously but she experiences it as these two perspectives whereas i've had this experience of after calling out to spirit i want to have an experience too <laughs> of coming back into my body 
after a nightly, you know, adventure doing something in other planes, talking to spirit guides and having a lovely time. I'm sure we do that every night, but I was having this experience of remembering as I was coming back into my body and I didn't see what a lot of people say, like I was looking at my body from outside my body. I had that experience of being in the body and out of the body simultaneously, but not in two perspectives, in all perspectives. It's kind of, you can't, it's weird to explain it. I don't know how to explain yeah. it. Is that what you experienced? Absolutely. Yes. Um, absolutely. I felt myself within everything, within any, all the parts as the whole, almost like, like a holograph, you know, that something of the whole is in every part in a holograph. So that's a good metaphor, I think, for, for that sort of experience, like this omnipresence. Yeah. Know, just everywhere. So here you are, this 13-year-old kid, your mum's died, you've had this weird experience according to you, like I'm sure at 13 you're going, what the, or maybe you were just enjoying it, I don't know, was it just feeling like you were at home, like, oh, I'm home again? Um, yeah. And, and then at the same time you're going through grief, so you're having ecstasy and grief kind of like dovetailing with each other, right? Mm-hmm. How did exactly. that work? How did that work? Uh, well, when it was working, it worked seamlessly, uh, and and it was the that little period of life was the easiest I had ever lived life up to that time, and I oh. noted that yeah. it was so so fluid. There was no friction caused by any any sort of self consciousness. There was no pretense. It was freedom, you know, for me, which was interesting. I didn't feel guilty about it. I know, the, you know. In, some people would would often feel guilty about that, but there was there was nothing there was no ability for me to feel guilty at that point and and so it was more or less it felt like you know that that before that I was just sort of riding in a few mainly riding in a few superficial layers of consciousness like an ocean I was close to the surface, but when that happened, I was sent and I, I felt as if I was living the full spectrum so up here you had grief and punching a door and you know, and, and, and being angry and being sad, but here at the same time, coexisting was, was just this profound silence and, and bliss and joy and uh, the sense that everything was was completely in perfect order. So there was no okay. sense of, of victimhood, you know, there was no... That, so you yeah. could have the negative emotion and the anger and the frustration and the crying, but enjoy it at the same time, like we enjoy yeah. crying when watching a movie. So there was a yeah. sense of experiencing it but being detached from it would that be more like what yeah well there's certainly a detachment in the sense that before in my life of course the feelings that you don't like or you judge you resist like hell you know but they're resisting there is no resisting so in some ways i wouldn't even use the word detachment because there was no arm length i was in everything but but there was but there like enjoying it there was a everything was undergirded by this this wonderful bliss which which just came out of this vast dimension, which, which I'd you know, known throughout childhood, but never had a consistent um, experience of to, to have that, that sense of freedom that was, that was present. So yeah, it was, it was a difficult thing for a 13 year old to articulate, even, even one with a, with a kind of a, a good vocabulary. It was just something that I was you know, enjoying the experience of and exploring for as long as it, as it stayed around. Yeah. Yeah, I remember when my daughter was little, you know, she was like 14, 15. She had this boyfriend for a nanosecond and he broke up with her to go out with another girl. 
and she was downstairs doing crying and carrying on and I'm like being a dutiful mother I go downstairs to try and you know soothe her and I'm saying things like but you were happy before you had this boy he's not the source of your happiness you know <laughs> and she just looks up at me and she goes I know that mum let me have my drama <laughs> and I remember thinking oh yeah I forgot you know we come to this planet to have the drama to experience it um how much of it we give ourselves is up to us us right so uh like you kind of forget that sometimes there's nothing need fixing you just gotta go through it right yeah. right all, all the world's a stage and we're but players on it and and the only thing that the thing that's helpful is that uh, the only problem is that we just forget that we're, we're something different than the character. And that's right. The, exactly. The, the trick. And is that what you are teaching people now, like through your work, so having experienced it and then explored it and for, with every angle through monastic life and 15 million hours of meditation, you've come to that realization that we can be here, be physical, experience all the emotions and the drama and, and, and love it from like, see it from your soul's perspective, like enjoy it from your soul's perspective. Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That's, yeah, that's, cool. That's... <laughs> cool. All right. So where should we go from here? I, I've got a couple of questions here that I just jotted down this morning. Do you think we have to, um, what have I written? Do you think we can experience the same deepening in spiritual growth without a like monastic life or without this 15 million um, hours of meditation. Do, 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 do you think we can get there without kind of going through what you went through and um, getting up at three o'clock in the morning, having cold showers? And stuff? <laughs> yeah, God, yeah. Certainly that. Well, absolutely. I'd have to say yes, but it also depends upon the person, you yeah. know? And, and so uh, it, to me, looking back, you know, with, with hindsight, I mean, kind of even at the time, it was pretty clear that I was going to have to put myself through some paces. That that was, for no reason, that there was a sense that that's just what's in the story, bud. So get, you know, get a lot, get lined up with that. Enjoy it. You know, enjoy that cold shower, you know, at, at age 17. But other people are completely different. And, and, you know, people don't even need a need to do a meditation practice. It just so happens that for the most part, uh, practically speaking it's it's an, it's incredibly helpful to most people uh like i i had friends who i i think i reckon they were enlightened that i knew when i was a teenager um and they would tell me you know you're already enlightened and i would you know <laughs> just start laughing i take it in because like yeah you know that might be true but i'm definitely not experiencing that you know so <laughs> you know, where the rubber meets the road in this life, I'm, I'm going to have to, you know, do something to, to kind of, you know, clear off the dross and get, get reconnected with that, you know, that, that reservoir of awareness that you keep, you know. Okay. Seeing. Well, that's a good question right there. So you're already enlightened, but I'm definitely not experiencing that. What do you think or feel or know that experiencing enlightenment looks like in daily life, like outside of monastic life, like in daily life, what does experiencing enlightenment look like? No, same thing it would in, in somebody living within the walls of the monastery. I mean, that's because there's a lot of people in a monastery who definitely aren't experiencing that yet, but it's um, just sort of a presence there. There's uh, well, I like to use that word Samadhi and it's, you know, it's Sanskrit. So, I'll break that down into into English, um, functional English, and it's this, it's this silence, it's this peace that passes all understanding. It's this 
it's this kind of an ineffable experience because we could throw a lot of words, silence and, and stillness or whatever at it, but all of those words aren't, are very imperfect approximations of, of really what's a universal experience, you know, the peak experience that Maslow talked about. And, and so that place of not being entangled uh, with, with the memories of the past and judgments and that sort of, and that place of not projecting into the future, when, when that falls away, there's that field that Rumi, the Rumi quote speaks of. And, and so enlightenment is, is essentially just a plateau in which that context has become the dominant context of life, as opposed to the, you know, the little person uh, that, we're, that we're sort of taught to attenuate to the little commentator that sits up uh, somewhere behind the forehead, at least for most Westerners. And, you know, that, that noise can settle down into, you know, settle down and kind of fall away into that, that quietude. And that quietude becomes the, the anchor of life and the, and the central context of, of life. And you know, I, I think there are, there are different, um, uh, certainly different developments and, and levels. And I don't think enlightenment is a, is a sort of a static, um, you know, one, you know, one doorway type experience. I think people will continue to grow, but but that's that's the basis of it. Is that 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 silence becomes the the uh, the main context in everything. So it's identifying more with the presence as self rather than the character that you've created as the personality yeah. physical construct, like the mental physical personality construct. You know, the mm. who is me not this body, not this mind, not this personality. Like this is the character I'm creating on the stage of life and I'm identifying with the creator of the character as opposed to the character, right? Right. And, you know, I was told something like that, even a good description of what it is, what, like when I was 18 and it first showed up, people would say like, hey, you're, you're already, you're touching somebody. and be like, what? What are you talking about? You know, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Could you point that out to me? And, you know, nobody could, but then, you know, as, as I kept going with the meditation practice, eventually I was like, oh, you mean that sort of space of awareness? God, I didn't, that's been there the whole time, but I wasn't even looking at it uh, because we're, we're trained to, to look at words and, and, and noise and, and all these things that, that aren't quite so subtle as, as what I might call pure awareness or awareness without any, you know, that's unbroken into, into little objects. It's yeah. almost like we're, yeah, exactly. We, we, we spend, uh, we live in the wave world and we're, we go to school and we, we get raised up and we, we identify ourselves as a little wave of the ocean. We see all the other little waves, but we forget that we're the entire ocean. Yeah. And, I know we have intense training to identify with, uh, well, especially the body and, uh, and the emotions and the mind and the personality. And yeah, we have intense training to be identified with that. And I suppose you went on an intense training to get unidentified with that, like to be identified with the, you know, I I remember when I was young, having this experience of breaking up with some boy and being devastated and hating myself and hating the world and wanting to commit suicide, you know, doing drama. And I had this experience of being present to me, like sitting on the couch, eating popcorn, watching me going through the drama like the witness as as uh, nancy yeah. did as nancy did when she's being dragged under a truck and she's having this experience of watching it as well as be as doing it 
And I remember thinking, gee, that was odd. But that one that was watching me doing the drama was really enjoying the show. Like I was like eating popcorn <laughs> going, oh, it's a good movie. <laughs> so I had to like figure all that out. Like, like, what was that all about? But that identifying with the person that's watching the show rather than the actress in the, on the stage, right? Was that, is that the presence yeah. you're talking about? That 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 is that is a facet of of you know opening into that experience absolutely yeah that is that is yeah I so what important... was happening for you when it really clicked in for you that this is like you're not your personality body construct that you're great like what was happening in your life and that really like it really really embodied that oh no i don't think i noticed what was happening <laughs> i think uh i think was it a gradual progress yes very gradual very gradual it's, it's kind of like i tell people that you can be driving from uh illinois to to wisconsin maybe i should use a better metaphor uh, you'd be driving from italy to switzerland uh, there that's better and from and sydney you to melbourne you won't necessarily <laughs> yeah you won't necessarily know that you're in switzerland right when you cross the border it's it's often that you, you maybe you hit Lucerne or something and say like, oh, this sure is, this is different than Italy. And then, and, I, and so I think that, that, that uh, all those different mileposts in my life, that has most typically been the case where, where you're kind of cruising, you're already in that territory, but you're not really paying, you know, uh, you're not looking for where you're at. You're not paying attention, you're just doing your practice and, and enjoying the silence. And then all of a sudden you find, okay, it's saturated to, to this point and, and here we are. So, yeah. I've written down a couple of questions here. And one of them is how long, how does it change your life? Like for people that do experience that awareness, how do you think it changes their lives? Like, um, how did it change yours experiencing that awareness? What are we to do with it? Like, why seek it? Just to overcome That's... negative emotion or like to enjoy negative emotion rather than to be, how do you think I it just changes? Wanted... I mean, I wanted to be to be free, and I was lucky enough to be given tastes of that freedom in small and large ways, and to be able to live life without the the judge. Because in my life, the judge was so present. Right. My, my upbringing, and I was trained to be a analytical intellectual, who, and I was very hard on myself. The critic, and, and that was a yeah, that was a big in our family. That was a big habit multi-generational habit and to live life without the weight of that without that sack of potatoes that is worth was for me worth the price of admission right there and that was worth all of all of the unnecessary um you know asceticism that i put myself through yeah uh, and, and you know on the flip side of that you could say yeah a lot of weight was taken off at the same time with that weight coming off there's just i realized i discovered that there's just so much bliss there's so much cause uncaused causeless joy it's a term used a lot these days but it's just that just wants to to bubble up an experience yeah. uh, when when we're not beating the crap out of ourselves with you know self-incriminating thoughts and 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 you know all of that and that you know is is wonderful being in flow, which is, you know, being in flow, being in the flow state, because we're not impeding it with, with all of that stuff. That's magical. And I've always enjoyed magic. I've always enjoyed that, that sense of uh, uh, serendipity and, 
synchronicity and and you know just just being so easy and so let go that you just find yourself in the right place at the right time and 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 there you are that that's 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 been something that has increased manifold yeah so, yeah. yeah the flow state is so cool isn't it just everything just oh look i remember now what was i doing i'd gone to new zealand a relative had died she was very old and i brought back um a few bits of furniture furniture that was hers including this thing behind me and um i had to pick it up from customs but i was in that flow state i don't know what i was doing to get in that flow state and customs is always like cues and fill out paper and go to the next window and fill out more paper and go to the next window it's always drama and i remember driving to the airport no traffic parking right outside plenty of car spaces walking in a couple of people getting a ticket going up to the counter like it just went bang 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 and i was home within half an hour and it just flowed and i'm thinking damn how did that happen <laughs> it's just everything just i said to the lady at the counter is there no one here today isn't it like normally really packed and she goes yeah it's really odd but um yeah it's just like the universe just lined up all the details to have it happen just effortlessly just picking up a box from customs i know but that flow but i really noticed that flow that there was just effortlessness and no drama yes. and i don't know how i got in that flow state i must have been doing something <laughs> That's what you're talking about, that life just becomes yeah. like whatever you need to do, it's effortless. It just, and things just I mean, like line up and manifest, right? And, and even, even when it seems that it ain't effortless, you know, that if, if you have that connection to you know, that, that sort of an anchor and that silent presence, even that becomes a flow, which, right. is, which is interesting. It's contradictory for me to say that, but. No, but, but you but, can enjoy it. it. Yeah. You can enjoy it. And in that, there, there's this wonderful heart expansion that, that, you know, within difficulties, within seeming difficulties. Uh, and I, I think there's a, there, for, for most people to keep going, there's that, I use the word seeming difficulties. There's, there's a wonderful tendency to not be fooled on appearances at ever more fundamental levels of, of that statement. And, you know, taking, you know, kind of a natural expansion of the platform from which one views life, it becomes broader and more expansive, and thus one catches on on fewer fewer things. One has has fewer problems, and, and then you know there's a virtuous circle. One flows more, and yeah, that's I found that it's it's like um it's it's a user friendly universe. Now well, we yeah, I, just, yeah. I was just thinking of that of Wayne Dyer or Byron Katie, you know the. Byron says it's all happening for you. Wayne Dyer says it's a friendly universe. It's all, you know, mm -hmm. life is happening for you. Even the drama is happening for you. And to be in that uh, knowing at the time when the shit hits the fan, it's like, it's all good. It's all good. This is happening for me, not to me. Yeah, that's that flow state. Mm. User friendly universe. <laughs> I like that yes. one. <laughs> That's an Ishtar saying. You'll have to do some, like Byron does. You know how Byron has all those quotes? You've got to get your quotes happening. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all righty. What are the other questions here? Um, how does it benefit this world? Yeah, so when people do get into this state, how does it benefit this world when people are more in flow state and, and living from presence? That is a, that right there is a few chapters of a book uh, in and of itself. Uh, 
I, I find that, uh, you know, being in that flow state, being in that presence is, is very much correlated with, with having a sense of, of being loved, with, with having a sense of, of, of wholeness that's in there. And when, when one person moves from a sense of wholeness and love, that starts to, you know, ripple. it's infectious. Mm. It starts to ripple. A lot of, a lot of our, say, political, um, a lot of the political problems or difficulties. I think you, you can boil them down to a lot of people having overtaxed adrenals, um, a lot of people getting stuck in, in say, the, the fight or flight response or the, the, the various mechanisms of the limbic system, the reptile brain, which is a you know kind of a very narrow and small view of the universe, good for punching a saber-toothed tiger, uh, not great for, for kind of uh, having, a, having a calm and, and broad perspective uh, and loving a perspective of life and I find that the more that people saturate in that presence and saturate in that love they, they become uh, more and more immune from you know being pushed into into that tiny corner of who they are more immune to fear uh, and and so you know, I think politically that that's going to be something that becomes very helpful probably have yeah it's interesting you know, watching watching the world change and watching the movements happen. There's quite a few movements happening. Like there is this conscious movement where people are waking up to the game that we are participating in and that seeing how that it is a, a control game and that we have been trained, as we were talking about, to be focused on who we are, you know, who we're pretending to be rather than who we really are. And, um, and then as they wake up, they get really angry about it and start screaming and yelling at the control drama and the cabal and the reptilians are controlling yes. us. And I just see that a lot. Uh, and they're yeah. kind of as much immersed in that game, that game of war or opposites or polarity, as they were immersed yeah. in the, I've got to struggle and pay the rent and, you know, do what... Right. It's, it's just, it's just, interesting. you know, the, the problem of evil, that's the, you know, the old philosophical name for that whole area. And, and also the, the normal vicissitudes of life, they, they, they just kind of get either wholly, um, wholly cleansed or certainly softened by, by immersion in that, that, that state of presence in which if we go deep enough down that rabbit hole, the, the sense of I and thou, you know, or self and other, self and others that starts to get quite porous and starts to break down. There's a sense that, that the more we go into that presence, the more love becomes a fundamental uh, ingredient of our experience. And when people are in love, you know, when, when people have it streaming through them, you know, that, again, it's a user-friendly universe. Even, even if there are um, rep reptilian overlords or you know, <laughs> demonic entities, when you're in that state of powerful love, it's like, hey, brother, you know, hey, hey sister. <laughs> doing you know? <laughs> yeah no i don't feel like being sacrificed tonight no thank you very much uh and it, you know it, it's maybe not even optimistic but but you know that, that's there, there's there's an alchemizing power in love that Absolutely. you know people talk about once we start we start to dip into that more and more it's 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 we've been selling it short uh you know and yeah. our horizons are, are too small for what love can do and how much love can and throw, flow through a human nervous system and, and how, how then, how much it can transform this whole world from the top to the bottom. 
Yeah, absolutely. Look, I talk about this because one of the messages of my show really is about deliberate creation. And uh, most people think that deliberate creation is about creating, you know, the stuff of life, like the holidays and the shoes and the, and the big houses and the cars and stuff. But really what I talk about is creating, like what we're being deliberate about is creating that peace, that joy, that love, like creating the acceptance, the knowing, the expansion, because that's what we're creating, right? And then from that place of being in that flow state, as you call it, knowing that, what did you say? What was your little meme, uh, the universe is? What was your little saying before? User-friendly. User user friendly. Friendly. <laughs> Love it. Knowing that it's a user-friendly universe. Then you, create, you can create anything you want from that space, right? You can create universes, worlds. You, you can create anything. And usually when you hit that state, all that stuff you think you need, you don't really need, actually. Oh, the fast cars and the holidays and even the lover, someone to love you or because all that is kind of, you're wanting to manifest that to fill some void or hole that you think that you're not enough or not worthy enough or you haven't got enough or, um, yeah. That's right there. I mean, it's, it's a game of hide and seek. We've been playing with ourselves. That's the game. We have wholeness. Wholeness is already here. The kingdom of heaven in Christian terms is already here. And, and we've just got the blinders on. And so the whole game is taking those blinders off and, and coming back into that recognition because we're, we're all the prodigal sons and daughters of, of our own higher self. And, yeah. But something yeah. that struck me, uh, Susie Hansen's, uh, I had this woman, she's a New Zealand woman, she wrote a book called The Jewel Soul Connection. So we're talking about ETs. So she's a dual soul. She's like, not that your soul is either human or ET, but from her ET perspective, she chose to come into a physical human life. So she did her soul plan from that perspective as opposed of her, the perspective of her spirit or higher self or whatever you would call it or soul perspective. She was having another life as an ET and then chose to come in to this life, which is really fascinating. But what, what fascinated me about her experiences when she's up on the ship, she had this experience of them teaching them about manifestation. And so they could dematerialize their body and rematerialize it into any object they liked because they have that dominion over energy. They understand that it's all energy and information and they can mold it any way they like, which from to our human puny mind perspective is seemingly like impossible. But one thing she said that struck me was that the humans couldn't do it because we couldn't reach that level of bliss and joy that they were working in, in order to do that. So they couldn't raise their vibration enough in order to have that dominion over the molecules. Does, is this making sense? Oh, yeah, I absolutely understand you, yes. Yeah, I would yeah. disagree. I, I, okay, I, I don't, tell me. I think there have been uh, credible, credible stories of human beings who have, have uh, I think, had plenty of enough bliss and uh, joy in them who have manifested crazy, crazy. Oh, things. no, I'm not saying all human beings. She was just talking about the humans that were on the ship at the time who were, oh, trying, who were trying to do it because the ETs were saying, let, let me show you how to do this. And then they, but she said she was in this ecstatic state of bliss and love, but she just couldn't reach that she couldn't like the people and the other humans that were right. 
being taught by the ETs. And I just remember thinking, wow, you know, like we've got so much to learn as humans. We've just got so much to learn. But they seem to have moved beyond, yeah, beyond this negative emotion. They seem to have moved to this space where they're living in that flow state that we're talking about all the time. So they've got complete, I don't know, power. Well, there's an awareness. The ego having the ego structure as, as sort of the center of our being, that is an awful lot of tension. That, that is an awful, there's an awful lot of energy put into maintaining that. Just like when we talk about the shadow self uh, in, in Jungian terms, that is basically just an organized structure of repression. We have a, we have a prison inside us for all that, we, all that at some point we deemed undesirable about ourselves. And it's, it's not a one-time sort of um, energetic expenditure. It's, it's something that has to constantly be done. We just, we've done it so long habitually that we don't even know we're doing it. So we're, we're really good at, at adapting in really maladaptive uh, sort of ways. And when, when, that, you know, when that falls away, when, when all that, that maladaptive kind of tension falls away, boy, it's just, it's like, a, it's like we're all these beautiful plants that have our petals sort of held in and then take the straitjacket off and there's you know they, they just want to want to unfold and unfurl is so that I, what I think it would be explained as a kundalini experience do you think that falling away of that shadow body and then that energy starts to rise would that be called like a kundalini experience hmm. and that uh, you know that kundalini is is one of the i think the manifestations of you know if you think about ourselves all another metaphor we're like tubes and we, we're like hoses, we get all kinked up, but that's the tension. And, and as that kinking releases, yeah, there's, there's lots of stuff, not just Kundalini, but also Prana. You know, Prana wants to, in Sanskrit term, Prana or Chi, mm-hmm. if you want to use that term, wants to flow. And, we're, and because we're tensed up, you know, functionally, we, we're impeding the flow. And, and as we open up, all sorts of stuff happens. Some, some people are going to have um, kundalini experiences. Some people might have come into this life and they, they might have done that already. That might have right. happened in another life. It may not have to happen in such a, such a dramatic form as many accounts uh, paint out. I, I mentioned that because a lot of people, uh, you know, get the notion that, oh, I've got to have this, you know, this thing happen to me and that's going to be one of my, my, my benchmarks and it's not necessarily so for everybody. But, what, they have to have yeah. the kundalini experience like yeah, I'm yeah, going to manifest yeah. the kundalini experience. Yeah. They make a checklist. Yeah, like tick that off, tick that off. You know, I've heard you say that you're a fan of uh, autobiography of a yogi. How old were you when you read that? What's that? How old were you when you read that book? God, I was 17 and 18. Yeah, right around my birthday. Because in that book, you know, what I talk about with Susie and her ET experiences, as you say, you know, is talked about in that book all these manifest like i remember sri yukteswar did a beam me up scotty thing in the your like didn't he like he so he had that sort of same oh, what's the word control is not the right word but dominion over manifestation to the point where he could buy locate right i remember reading that book thinking is this real yeah. it's just fantasy like i just was like yeah what do you think about all that yeah, oh, God, of course that, that drew me in. And, uh, you know, I, I, you know, as skeptical as I was, I had a tendency to believe that it was all true. It had the resonance of, of, of actuality to me. Uh, and, 
I haven't, I haven't experienced someone uh, in this life by locate. I've certainly experienced a lot of weird stuff up to that point. So there, there, I'm, I'm a little bit primed to think that, that it's uh, possible. Uh, possible. So uh, what have I, you I've experienced seen. in that respect? Like during your meditations? Well, yeah. <laughs> mainly a, a, a great deal of more, more sort of psychic stuff. Right. Uh, you know, which, which, which has been of the nature that it has uh, tended to demonstrate that consciousness seems to be the primary constituent, not matter, that consciousness is not some sort of um, ep random epiphenomena that, that comes off of biological complexity, you know, that, and so, you know, for instance, um, well, this is maybe a minor tale, but it's fun. Uh, I remember one, one of my really good friends uh, at the monastery, uh, somehow our basement there had flooded, and so we, a lot of us had to be moved out of there, and I ended up uh, bunking next to him up, up, in a, up in a living room and while, while the basement was being sort of sump pumped out. And I was awake. He was asleep. Um, but I was kind of in a meditative wakeful space where I was actually thinking in conversation to him. But then he was replying uh, while, while sleeping verbally out of his mouth to what I was thinking. And this, this went on for you know, this this 15 minutes and we were talking about the Great Pyramid of all things and, and ancient megalithic construction. Uh, and, and so that, you know, that experiences like that have uh, have been a plenty. Uh, okay, so you were communicating telepathically, but because he was asleep. He was, he was sleeping. Responding and, and verbally. Was, he was responding verbally was rather than, verbally. Yeah, than telepathically. Yes, yes, yeah, that, yeah, stuff like that. I, I remember I used to, my, I had this friend named Austin when I was a, a teenager. And one of the things that I didn't fully appreciate at the time uh, was um, he basically found things for me like, like Edgar Casey would find things for clients. And in, in my case, it was my retainer. I had to wear this little, I found it uncomfortable plastic retainer. It was so easy to lose because it was clear and I would lose it so frequently. And I, and I, as a teenager, then I would kind of, uh, sort of panic because I didn't want, want my dad to uh, know that I'd lost my retainer. So when, when I couldn't find it, I'd torn the place up. I would give Austin a call and, and he, would, he would invariably be laughing because he knew I was looking for my retainer even the first time without a precedent. And he said, oh, so you lost your retainer. I was like, yeah, you know where it is? And he said, let me, let me, let me tune in. And he would go, to, he'd never been to my house and he never described my house to him. He, would, he said, you know, that, that blue couch in your in your TV room, well, it's on, it's on the, the left angle, you know, the left side of it, and it's, and it's in, in the newspaper. You, you left it in the fold of the newspaper, you silly boy. And then I go, went and checked, and it wasn't there, and I went back to the phone, and he said, no, you didn't look very well. You have to go look at that end of the paper, and there it was. And, and this, this went on uh, over maybe a period of five months. I lost it about seven times, and he found it every time. Okay, okay. So uh, you're around, that. how old are you at the time? Around 17 then? Oh, then I was 15. Yeah, oh, 15, so you're 16. really young. So who's Austin? Like he's just a friend? Uh, like who is he? He was, he, was a, he was a friend of mine. He, he, he passed away a few years back. Was he an older uh, but, man or is he a kid? Yeah, or? yeah. No, he, I was 16 and he was 54. So that, that was, we were we Was were he buddies. a meditation teacher? Like who was he? Kind of, sort of. He, he was... Um, Introduced to me by another friend who was a local psychic and a, and a transcendental meditation teacher. Right. And, and after okay. she moved out of town, he, he became my, 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 my sort of local psychic mentor friend. Yeah. And, uh, 
uh, Austin was he, he a self-described walk-in, and okay. and okay. so mm -hmm. and, and and apparently the one who walked in was was essentially something of a of a Native American shaman type. Okay, and right. so that. That, that, that wasn't my path and he never pushed it on me because he knew it wasn't, but, but that yeah. was his, um, his focus. But the thing I liked about him so much from the beginning was, was that he had in his presence that, that presence that I'd felt uh, right. in the you accident. And so you recognized, mm -hmm. so you had this experience of presence in, in your sort of your NDE. And so you recognized it when you met him, like, Oh, that yes. same feeling happens with you. Yeah. Yes. Did you ever ask him how he did that? Like, I'm sure. As a uh, yeah. Kid. yeah, I did. I mean, his, uh, I thought it was rather simpler than how he explained it. But he said, like, yeah, I just talked to my team. I was like, yeah, you know, you know, all right. The mob. Cool. Uh -huh. Go talk to your team. You know, that, that was his description. And sometimes he would say, like, no, I just knew that one. And oh, so it was, uh, it was just like had an instant knowing. Yeah, like, yeah, just, just like yeah. a flash. Like, I just, oh, that's it's there. Yeah, yeah. Yes, or say, yeah, okay, yeah. team, tell me, like, show me, tell me. Yeah, that's what I do. Talk to the yeah. team. I don't always get the answers, but often I do. So do you talk to your team? Have you met your team, your mob? I call them uh, a mob. I have a, I have a rather different experience than that. For me, for me, that sort of thing typically comes through direct knowing. And, yes. and just sort of just tune, tune, letting go and tuning in and tapping in. I, I remember as a teenager going to a what was it a like meet your spirit guides workshop yes and and it, and it seemed that i was successful but when i when i contacted them they laughed at me and said i had everything that i needed already so we're not going to tell you much so you're good and that was that was the uh Where that was the go. contact yeah so, yeah. yeah yeah no i get that laughter totally laughter was included so yeah lots yeah. of laughter absolutely 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 you're good <laughs> to go yep I know. And then trying to work out how you're good to go. Really? I have it. Could you explain it more? Like the curious mind still ask questions and they're just laughing at you going, Oh, you're so funny with all your questions. <laughs> yeah. 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 It was, it was, I knew pretty early on that my life was a, was a comedy and you know, it was kind of funny groping around in the dark in those teenage years. Although at the time it didn't feel funny. All but, uh, yeah. No, it doesn't feel funny when you're in a car accident and your mum's. Yeah, it doesn't feel funny oh, at the well, time. Well, that, but, yeah, that, that, yeah, that was. You that know, was, but uh, another one, yeah. I keep bringing up other people on the show, but I, you know, after years, like I've been showcasing new old teachers probably for around 20, 25 years, both on radio and in, in person. And there's many stories that I've heard. Have you seen Natalie Sudman? Uh, you know, the um, no. she, she was blown up in Iraq. Uh, in a bomb roadside bomb and she had this amazing nd she wrote a book called the application of impossible things but one of the things that struck me about her from from that spirit side perspective she was designing her injuries and she would um she would see you know like her life play out with different injuries and her and her spirit guide were like falling around laughing at her character you know sort of groping around in the dark with one blind eye or a broken arm or whatever as they were designing you know looking at the different injuries and you know from that perspective we are we're hilarious but when you're down here like boots on the ground not so funny right <laughs> not so funny not so funny when you go blind or you can't use your arm or whatever but um yeah their sense of humor is just beyond beyond 
Okay, so astrology. When did you start studying astrology? Well, I certainly had an interest in that uh, from a pretty early age, since you know my early teens and before. But I, I was it was such I had such an ambivalence about it that I didn't really seriously study it until God until my early 30s late 20s i didn't really do it in the what i mean serious you know very systematic and committed and you know just diving right in and i'm glad that it turned out that way uh because you know then looking back at my life uh you know through my birth chart and the transits and progressions and all that sort of stuff then i could see how 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 eerily uh you know my my uh, life had followed the important transits and progressions the important uh, changes in the astrological weather and, and know that you know no astrological knowledge that I that I might have had had at, at all influenced uh, the course of events in any way so right. nice to do it that way so do you think having the knowledge of like seeing things that's going to happen is going to help us deal with it when it comes up like if you if someone's charting you and they say okay when you're this age you've got this big transit so something big's going to happen or yeah i don't know yeah I, I i don't like to practice astrology as a as sort of a fortune a predictive teller. thing right yeah as a, as a predictive thing although i know some people who seem to be pretty damn good at that and right. have no no problem with it it's it's not really my my flavor um because you know generally i'm i i think of astrology as kind of an ancillary tool ultimately uh that that can be quite helpful you know uh, depending on the context Rather, I, I, that's rather I prefer teaching people meditation uh, where I can give them, a, teach them how to fish basically and give them a tool which they can use so that no matter what is happening, they're going to be cool and they're going to be able to, to flow with it. So. Okay, so the question I get asked by lots of my clients because I don't teach meditation. I have done lots of meditation. I have taught lots of meditation, but I don't currently. Uh, and I tell people to go off and meditate and they say, I can't do it. I just can't do it. So as a meditation teacher, what would be one of your tips for people that have tried and tried and tried and tried to sit and they just get frustrated or their mind is like crazy bees or they just can't, they tell me they can't do it. And I just I keep trying and they go, oh, but I can't, I get so frustrated. What would be one of your tips for those people who feel like they can't meditate? Quite a few tips. So uh, <laughs> shut me up if I go on too long. Give us a couple. Uh, <laughs> well, well, first of all, I, I think um, um, having an effortless approach in which one doesn't have to fight their mind mm -hmm. is helpful. Uh, understanding meditation is not about having a completely blank mind and, and not trying to go for that. Although even if you're told that a hundred times, people still often do that because they have that preconception. But uh, letting go of that preconception and being innocent with the process and uh, there are practices. My, my current practice is one that doesn't require the mind, um, you know, to be shut up. There's no oppositional relationship. Instead of trying to chain the monkey mind, it's more like giving it an ideal banana. Uh, so uh, I, I think that, and this is different for everybody, but I think uh, mantra meditation is wonderful. It has been wonderful for me. And mm -hmm. that there, there's kind of an attractive object that instead of moving the mind outward like almost every other type of thought has a tendency of, of sort of pulling the mind back down towards the source of thought and and there there are certain i think 
objects of thought which are inherently more pleasing than others in, in that way. And so that right, those two things right there, I, I think would be the, the biggest tips I would give to people is don't try to fight your mind, don't try to make it quiet, understand that sometimes there's gonna be a hellacious amount of thoughts and, and you know, have some sort of vehicle that you can use very effortlessly and gently, not like a guys at the Ganges River going, Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya, you know, that, I wouldn't recommend that sort of use of mantras, but a very effortless back and forth organic uh, uh, flow to the meditation, I think is for most people is, is going to be a great benefit. Right. So mantra, mantra, kirtan, there's lots of mantra and kirtan happening here in Sydney. It's like it's going off. Everyone's singing mantra and kirtan and getting into that flow state through music and mantra and stuff. So that would be like the, the mantra meditation that you Yeah, well, actually there, there's, um, there's a couple of ways of doing mantra. That, that's one way of doing it. And I think that can be quite effective, but uh, the way I've typically done it has been a silent, silent practice. So just mm -hmm. purely thinking the mantra, not, not verbalizing it. And, um, in the Vedic tradition, they're, they're considered two different types of, uh, two different types of applications uh, okay. of ways of using them with different effects. Yeah, yeah. So cultivating the witness. So when you're having crazy thoughts like, did I shut the door? Did I turn the gas off? Oh my God, tomorrow work's going to be so stressful, whatever they're thinking. Just like, oh, look at that. Look what I'm thinking. Like just witnessing those thoughts instead of being, being the thought, like witnessing that thought. Is that what you're talking about? That not resisting the mind? Um, no. Not necessarily, because sometimes, sometimes that can lead one into becoming a little bit dissociative mm -hmm. um, uh, or, 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 or this kind of an artificial. Uh, when I think of the development of witness and consciousness, I usually put, in, put it in a context of something that tends to naturally sort of arise. It's almost more of a, of a relaxation into a deeper strata that, that, that occurs right along with all this stuff. So there's, there doesn't need to be sort of a separation up there, but it's more of a relaxation uh, through the meditation practice uh, and uh, that's that's where it pops up I think uh, most beneficially yeah. but yeah yeah but in meditation yeah it's like uh, if you're sitting there and we close our eyes and all of a sudden there's oh my god there's a cacophony of thoughts going on in there it's even more than I thought you know uh, so so in the meditation practice itself would be kind of introducing introducing your mantra and you know and then letting whatever happens happen, letting whatever thought wants to come up, that's fine. You know, it's gonna, it's gonna do that uh, if, we can, if we have instant judgments of our thoughts. Well, those are just thoughts too. We don't have to mess with that. And then we just come back to the meditative vehicle when we notice that we're off on some other tangent. Yeah, yeah. So who are you teaching? Are you teaching people that are on an intense search for meaning like you were, or are you teaching like more mainstream people who just want to meditate because they want to quieten their monkey mind. Like what's your audience that you're teaching when you're teaching meditation? Everybody. It's, it's, Everybody. it's a, it's, it's a big mixed audience. Right. As far so you're getting the movies um, and maybe people that have been doing it for you, you're getting years people. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. do you teach them the same way? Like it's across the board, the same sort of technique or. Or do you sort of yes. mix it up? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Okay, one more. Oh, it's 11.11 because 11, we're running out of time. But I wanted to ask you this about monastic life. Uh, I used to be married to a man who was a Hare Krishna for years. And when he was young, when he was 17, he 
wanted to become like a monk, he, you know, like a Hare Krishna monk. But he couldn't because of his sexual energy, like he couldn't contain that. And I've often thought about this, like I thought, I'd hate to be a man because <laughs> you've got like the sexual energy that surges through you is so much stronger, mostly for most men than it is for women, I think. And um, it can be so distracting. I had the, a woman on the show, Joanna, who was uh, a transgender. She trans from being an alpha male to a woman. And um, when she started taking the hormones, the first thing she said was that she had this clarity of mind that she'd never had before because she wasn't thinking about sex 24-7. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, okay. So when you were doing the monastic thing, did you sort of suffer with that? Like, No, no. Well, well I mean, first thing is, is we weren't a celibate order. Oh, you weren't. Um, oh, okay. No, All right. no, we have relationships and and sex and and so the understanding was not trying to not have the physical act it was more uh, the emphasis was placed on being conscious through all experiences of right life. okay yeah and less what you're doing and more where you're coming from so there wasn't ever that that issue of of a, you know, abstinence, that, that really, complete abstinence of, yeah no yeah because yeah. i i don't know i mean i think it's good for some and um I, you know, I think it gets really lost inside mainstream religion like Catholicism where they say, okay, you can't have sex anymore because I don't think that they train right. Catholic priests. For the most part, I, I think it's dreadful, yes. You think it's dreadful? Yeah. But there seems for, for to be, in the Buddhist sort of traditions, there seems to be this training that they give their monks to, um, like, channel that energy differently rather than outwardly, like, channel it through their body. No, you don't think so? No? <laughs> the training given but i get i i i happen to be uh, in this life people tell me they're dirt and and, and other monks what? whether it's yeah people tell me they're 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 the naughty stories of their monastic oh. orders in the I, and so yeah, I reckon there's a lot of just it. the catholic church i'm, I'm hearing of lots of rosh of roshis in, in the zen tradition who are getting retired because they're grabbing grabbing at women's breasts you know <laughs> out of nowhere and and uh, there's a laundry list and now there are practices which can rechannel the energy that's sure yeah. and some people may be affected at it but um you know at this point i'm not quite sure you know how effective it is for everybody i i think generally it's a it's a it's a bad deal and uh, on mm. another point this own this this emphasis that's often in hinduism placed upon you know if you don't ejaculate you know, then you'll have, or, or in, or in uh, Taoism, these, these, the, the Taoists who are trying to become immortal by not ejaculating and have their, have their chi go up. I, right. um, I, well, I think there's something to that. I think that can be gotten, gotten around with enough presence, with, an, with enough awareness that I, I, I really don't see it as a big of a, a stumbling block to reaching higher plateaus as, as a lot of those teachings frame it. Okay. And, uh, yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, well, that's a whole show conversation, that sexual energy and you know, spiritual energy. That's a whole show. But we're running out of time. So what would you like yeah. to leave our listeners with? What would be your <laughs> message to the world, honey one? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see. I, I think my, my message to the world uh, would, would probably be that your own higher consciousness is, is closer than you think. And no matter how long, no matter how deep a hole you've, you've dug for yourself in this life or others, uh, 
once once you start down the path of toward awareness, it does not have to take the same amount of time as it took to to go in. It takes far less time because the that that presence is closer to us than than our next breath and and enlightenment and expanding consciousness and meditation do not have to be difficult procedures uh, i've done the difficult so i know how that goes and, and you've done the you know, three o'clock cold showers <laughs> i've done lots of stuff you know i haven't buried myself in sand and lit fire around my head which some people do i didn't go to that extreme but i went far enough and i would and and i'm thankful that i was graced to be directed toward toward a path that that is just effortless it is so damn easy uh easy. that, that you wouldn't want to do it so your mantra would be to people remember that it's easy it's easy it's easy it's who i am it's easy so while they sit to meditate instead of saying damn i can't do this it's so hard to change that to this is easy you know and and i always recommend you know just because it's it's only been my path but I always do recommend learning the Ashaya's Ascension practice. It's a wonderful practice. And this is what you and teach. That's what I teach. And right. I also recommend transcendental meditation, although I, um, I'm more biased towards the first one because that's, that's where life led this body. Yeah. And, and the transcendental is the one that you get the mantra. I, I, there's a meditation teacher here in Sydney called Tom Cronin who I've had on the show, and he teaches that. And I sent my daughter off to him when she was going through her some dark nights of the soul to get her mantra from him uh, really helped her because, you know, mum can't teach you anything because you're mum, right? <laughs> like, yeah, go away, yeah, mum. Don't tell me what to do. It's like, all right, I'll pay someone <laughs> to tell you what yeah. to do then. It's just going to cost me more money. <laughs> right, Star, it's been so beautiful to talk, to talk with you today and one day we'll hopefully get you down under and you can show some people how to do the Ishtar Ascension Meditation. That'd be lovely. Yeah. And do your astrology as well. Where can people find out more about you for people listening to this on audio only podcasts? Uh, my websites, which I, I don't know if they're going to be seen on the audio only sites, but um, uh, or one of them is www.ascension-meditation.com, mm -hmm. and the other is www.awakenedlightastrology.com. And, and okay. I can be contacted through both of those websites. Okay, great. Well, I'll have both those links on my page on my website with your audio and YouTube and more information. Have you written any, any books? Have you got any books coming out? Um, I, yeah, I will have one coming out. I'm not quite sure when. I'm, I'm more than halfway into it and I, I plan on finishing it uh, before the year is up and, and we'll see which uh, way I publish it. I might actually have a connection to a literary agent in a publishing house. So that, that would be, be kind of cool. What's the name of the book? Ah, tentative, tentative. Um, okay, okay, working program. Tentative. It's, it's, it's mainly a sort of, I basically wrote my life out because it's been chock full of crazy spiritual adventures and it's, and it's, it's kind of a um, teaching about consciousness through the, through the lessons that I had to go through. Adventures. Yeah. Yeah, Beautiful. spiritual adventures. Well, I look forward to it coming out. And thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a delight. Thank you very much. Yes, it absolutely has. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to meeting you in person uh, when, I, when I come to Sydney. I don't know when that's going to be, but I, I have a feeling it might be next year. So, One day, one day. Bye for now. Yeah. Bye. What an absolutely beautiful soul. 
as we do with most of the people I speak to on the show, we had this long conversation afterwards. <laughs> we talked about so many things. We talked about predictive, more into that sort of predictive uh, astrology, you know, how there are all these astrologers are putting out the weather forecast, you know, what Mars is going to do and what conjunction and this is going to happen. And, and Ishtar was saying that, no, nah, he doesn't do that predictive astrology. It's more about getting to know who you are and why you're here, not this like the predictive weather patterns of astrology. But we did speak about, you know, next year, what's happening in the charts next year, which I didn't record. And he said there's just more of the same of what's been happening, sort of Pluto conjuncting Saturn, Pluto's more freedom, Saturn's more structure. And so there's these opposing, uh, which is kind of stirring things up politically. And he said, you know, it's going to be more intense for that next year. But we all know that, right? So, so the shit's going to hit the fan even more. Like as the light expands on our planet, it brings up, it dredges up all the dirt. When you turn, when you turn the dimmer switch on, you see all the dirt. And then we have to be in that place of dealing with it, which we spoke about with that mindful presence, you know, when you're connected to that presence where you can watch the show, not be a part of the show as you, but be the more of the witness of the show or the creator of the show, the show being life and be in that place of bliss and joy. You can meet any challenge with ease and grace and, uh, and, be, and stay in the flow state and know that it's happening for you and not to you. Anyway, beautiful man, beautiful meditator, meditation teacher and psychic, <laughs> psychic astrologer. I'm sure he's going to come. I can see him coming down under and talking to the, the younger generation down under and teaching meditation. I think he'd do well down here. Maybe you'd like to have him wherever you are in the world or in the States. He travels around. He said he's packing up his house now. He's going over to London to do some traveling. He travels around. Beautiful, beautiful down-to-earth, young, spiritual teacher, master, Ishtar. Ah, thanks again for watching. It's been a pleasure presenting another show for you. And uh, you can check out his other talks on Buddha at the Gas Pump and uh, he was on Trisha Barker's show and Yannicka's show, Wisdom from North. He's been on all sorts of shows where he talks more about what happened to him during that time where his mum died, his stories kind of spoken at nauseam. So we didn't go too much into it. If you want to hear more about his story, he spoke with, um, what's his name from Buddha at the gas pump. I can't think of his name. Sorry, I've forgotten your name for a couple of hours. So that's a long conversation. If you want to hear more from Ishtar and uh, what do I want to say to you about what's coming up? I'm very excited that Mary Rodwell's coming to Sydney. We're going to do some, um, we're going to do some, sort of like we're going to find out who we are as uh, galactic multidimensional beings in a small setting here in my home so if you're in sydney and you'd like to do a day with mary and i 15th of september we're going to be doing that but also Susie hansen who i spoke about on the show is coming into the inner sanctum next month in september just trying to find a date actually probably around mid probably my monday the 16th 15th in uh, the u.s and we're going to talk more about the ET technology, consciousness, you know, what she experiences. She's fascinating. She's like one of my all-time favorites. I have to say, Susie Hansen's amazing. I just um, was amazed when I had that conversation with her. Her book, The Jewel Soul Connection, is fascinating. I think all this meditation practice and training that we do here on Earth is like preparing us to move into that more expanded consciousness and and being more deliberate with how we create our world, the ETs seem to know that. They seem to be 
all powerful with that. So, um, yeah, it's going to be a fascinating conversation online if you want to meet Susie and pump her full of questions about ET connections and her experiences. Go and have a look at the show that I did with her, uh, I don't know, about a year ago. You'll see it there on YouTube or iTunes or Stitcher or Mixcloud, SoundCloud, wherever you're listening to this and also on my website if you put in Susie Hansen in the, uh, you know, in the little menu thing you'll she'll come up and uh yeah so <laughs> i think that's all i want to say to you love you all remember to buy the book you know awakened by death and i'll see you all next time big love to you